The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rocket, turn down the Bee Gees greatest hits and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 417 with guest Rocky Lodka, recorded live Monday, February 2nd, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who responds to the recession by hoarding old Rocky Latka books, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin, your host. I'm in New London, Connecticut. Richard Campbell is in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hey, Richard. Hello, sir. How are you? You know, it, it occurs to me that people don't really know how the magic happens that we sound like we're in the same room. And we really aren't. We, we really aren't. And we get asked this all the time, so I think it's time to come clean about how we actually do this. Most radio stations, um, you may or may not know this, but have high-speed ISDN lines that go from station to station so that somebody in one city can just go downtown and go into a little studio and they can be connected in real time with this kind of quality um, through an ISDN connection. However, us being geeks, we decided to do it on the cheap. So how we do it is Richard calls in on the telephone to, uh, to the studio here in New London, and he records himself with a microphone at his desk right. in his house, right? So I have a headset on that connects me to the telephone, and then I also have a big, large diaphragm mic in front of me. Right. And so on the telephone, we record him on one phone line on a separate track, and then we record the guest on another phone line on another track, and we have a device that uh, bridges those two things together, those two lines together, and gives us two separate audio tracks. Now, we don't use Richard's phone track in the in the main show, of course. You never hear it. But what we use it for is when he sends us his wave file, and then we line it up to the phone track. Aha! Uh-huh. Tricky. Yeah, very clever. We line it up. We synchronize it by hand. The editors go through every second of audio, and uh, they take out the dumbness and um, jack up the signal and clean it up and make us sound really smart. And then we mute the phone track when we're done, and the result is 
and Rocks. The magic you hear now. That's right. So let's get started with Better Know Framework. All right, sir, what do you got for me? So it occurs, Richard, it occurs to me, this is like, you know, the Flash of Inspiration show or something like that, because yeah. I'm going through, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I have this back to basics thing emblazoned in my brain sure. now that I want to just make sure that nobody's left behind, no developer left behind. And we haven't talked about reflection in a long time on the show as yeah. a technology. We used to, in the older shows, you hear all the sort of core technologies of .NET explained. And reflection is one of those things where you can look at an object and find out its members, its public members and its private members, and what types those members are, whether they're properties or fields or or method names or any of those things. You can query an object and, and get that. Now, what you're actually looking at is a system.type object. So... Every um, every object has this system type object hanging off of it. And the system type class you can look up in the documentation has all of those methods like get property, get properties, uh, get members, get methods, and, and a whole bunch of ways that you can query any object and find out what the name of it is, what its namespace is, what the assembly name is, the versioning, and all that stuff. But then also the uh, the methods and the properties that that it exposes and its private internal members as well. And that, my friends, is the the beauty of reflection. It is not always recommended that you use it heavily because there is a performance penalty for using it a lot, as many of our guests have explained many times before. But if you ever do need to just look at an assembly, load it up, find out what it is, figure out what interfaces it has, and all of that stuff. System.type is your friend. Learn it, love it, know it. Mr. Campbell, sir, you have an email for us? I do indeed. In fact, I've been digging through some of our older emails. You know, I left a few gems behind, and I I found one from October. And this is from Rob Wilden. Uh, and it was about show 379, which is a show we did with Billy on, uh, on Silverlight, of course. Oh, yeah. And here's what Rob has to say. Richard comments around the 50-minute mark about the motivation of Silverlight not being WPFE, rather it is multi-client platform support, and I have to disagree with this. You guys are missing the point. WPF is represented by aspects like dependency properties, UI elements, visual tree concepts, routed events, data templates, etc. These are all core concepts in WPF and Silverlight, the exact same interfaces. WPF being in the same trap as HD DVDs is a misnomer. The real trap is when people mistake XAML for WPF. Why is WPF tough stuff? Because no one bothers to make the distinction between the presentation core.dll and the presentation framework.dll. XAML is a head fake. Hmm. All I'm saying is that the data types and the APIs have a common union set between WPF and Silverlight. The real problem is that people don't bother to take the time to understand WPF from an API perspective, which isn't actually too difficult. Right. Take a look at MSDN and look at Reflector. Very good point. you said. Very good point. Billy talks about when is the best time to start learning WPF. The short answer is now, only because Silverlight 2 has shipped. These are the same concepts over again. One could create a list of namespaces to learn, and in the end, you would know WPF and Silverlight. Thanks very much for your show. Still doesn't negate the fact that Silverlight runs on a Mac. 
Woohoo! That is true. And also that, that it's a subset of features, without a yep. doubt. Sure. And now, as Silverlight has been maturing a bit, there are features in Silverlight that are not in WPF. In fact, I'm hearing they're going to be right. backported to WPF. Yeah, I've heard the same thing. So this, yeah, there's, there is flex. Uh, Rob, the world is not as pure as you would like it to be. Well, that happens. But it's all good stuff, I agree. And, and, and I'm interested to see what ultimately happens with WPF. I thank goodness for guys like Billy Hollis who are making things work. Richard, are we going to be anywhere soon uh, in our travels together? I think the next time we're going to be together is the MVP Summit. That's true. Yeah, the beginning of March. I'm yeah. hoping to do a few shows while we're there. There's always interesting crowds there. This, maybe we can. Uh, maybe we could throw a party while we're at the uh, MVP Summit. Maybe you know throw the a party little... I've been thinking about that we have to throw is Show 500. Oh yeah, but that's like. In November, I think. I haven't actually count, counted the dates to figure out what, when Show 500 is going to happen. We should start planning that now, actually. Dude, can you believe it? Show 500. No, no, I can't. It's amazing. Yeah. Right, well, the idea for a party like this would be to invite everybody who's ever been a guest on .NET Rocks right. and the public to come meet together and just have one hell of a good time. Hell, everybody have a drink. So if you've ever been a guest or you've ever listened to .NET Rocks. Or you never heard about it and somebody tells you, come on to this party, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> hmm? And uh, I'm sure I'm sure we can find some, get some help with that from our sponsors and uh, and maybe give away some prizes and just have a really good time. Absolutely. I'm and if you've got some ideas that. for our 500th show, please send us an email, .NET Rocks. Because Lord knows it's going to be better than our 400th. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up. Anything will be better than that. Oh, you want to hear a really good milestone show? Go listen to show number 100. That was funny. That was a fun show. That was a fun show and informative. We brought back some uh, some highlights from the first 100 shows. Absolutely. Well, Richard, uh, it's another Rocky show. He's been on the show so many times. I've lost count now. He's one of our uh, most frequent guests, but that's because he has so much to say and so much to offer the community. Hi, Rocky. Hi, how are you? Rocky, of course, is a software developer from Genic Technologies and uh, a rock star in the .NET world. Um, the last time you were on, I believe we were talking about um, the latest version of your CSLA.NET for Silverlight. Is that right? I think that's absolutely right. Your application framework. What are we? What's on the? Uh, what's on the agenda for today? Well, I think uh, probably the biggest thing that's happened. Uh, since we talked last, is that my expert C-Sharp 2008 business objects book is now available. All right. And covers CSLA 3.6, which is the same version as the uh, Silverlight uh, framework. Uh, but the book actually doesn't talk about Silverlight, uh, at least not much. It's primarily focused on uh, Windows or .NET development. And that's because Silverlight was released Pretty much within a week, I think, of the book being completed. <laughs> oh, so the timing wow. was really close there. Yeah, to, to uh, have gone back and and when we thought about it, talked about it with uh, A Press too, and uh, you know the idea of putting another chapter in to cover Silverlight, and you know, but that would have delayed the book at least a month, right? And it was already, you know, I mean, the, the problem with books. The traditional books, like I guess there are several problems, but one of the problems with a traditional book model is that um, there's just a uh, sales window 
and it's you know relevant for a period of time, and then pretty soon Microsoft will start trumpeting Visual Studio 2010, right, and .NET 4, and then people will start to think, gee, do I really want to buy a book about Visual Studio 2008 when we're just a couple months from 2010? You know, yeah. Well, then it's sort of that race there where you you almost got to write the book before the product is released, and you're battling beta bits to try and get the book out early in the in the cycle. And I've done that, and I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that sucks. It, well, it it's uh, it radically increases the amount of work involved in writing the book, and. Even with all of the extra work, it decreases the quality. Right, right. And then you're playing catch up. So, so what is absolutely new in this book? Is there anything absolutely new, or is it all just sort of uh, retelling the stories of the earlier software? A little of each, I would say. Uh, certainly, my overall way of thinking about uh, using responsibility-driven objects and having a framework that supports that and, and tries to abstract away the complexities around data binding and all these other things. You know, I've, I've been singing that story for, I don't know, 12 years. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I still firmly believe in that. And, and so in that regard, it's no different. But the book itself um, went from... Okay, so this is going to sound worse than it is, but it went from uh, 12 chapters to 21. Ooh. But on the other hand, the chapters are quite a bit shorter. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> that's why I said <laughs> it sounds worse than it really is. Um, the book is still, I think, 750 pages or something. So it's a it's a big book. Um, but I, I reorganized the content quite a bit based on the the way, kind of the kinds of questions that people ask when I talk about it, um, or the kinds of questions that come up on the forum. And I thought that I could reorganize the content in the book to better answer a lot of these common questions and still kind of give access to all the advanced stuff that, you know, some, some people want to know the, you know, the really deep, gory stuff that I had to do to you know, solve certain problems. And some people just want to use the framework. And yeah. uh, for better or worse, the book has to service both audiences. Right. Because so. CSLA really came about around, you I mean, you originally gave away CSLA in your book. That was where it came from, right? Absolutely. Going back 10 plus years ago. Yeah. It totally started out as, as well, as a, I, I considered it a side effect of the book. <laughs> um, my, my my original plan was not to write an open source framework and uh you know and, and really it wasn't until um dot net 2 you know so 2004 2005 that i really finally accepted that this thing had taken on a life of its own and and uh of course that's been you know several years now that i've been treating it you know with source control and change control and, you know, really treating it like it probably deserves to be treated. Yeah, right. And it's quite a responsibility too, because there's support issues and there's always, you're always getting feedback from people and, you know, you have to make those decisions of what things to include and what things to cut. I mean, it's a big responsibility to own a piece of software like that. 
Yeah, I I certainly feel the weight sometimes. Um, yeah. I guess primarily because it's it's so widely used, and so I can change something, um, and then I'll you know break somebody, but it won't just be like one somebody. <laughs> if if I you know if I don't pay attention to what I'm doing, I can break a lot of somebody's, and uh, so you know I, I kind of feel the pain I think of any software vendor, you know Microsoft or, or anybody else, in that you know on one hand you got to innovate and, and change and continue to make things better. And on the other hand, you can't just throw everything out that you've done because um, you know, some cool new idea comes along. Uh, because you know, what, what does that do to your existing user base? Right. Rocky, you know, one thing we don't really talk about much when you come on the show is what you do uh, when you're not doing CSLA. You know, when you're not, uh, I mean, we talked about it a little bit at, um, what was it, uh, Mix, the Mini Mix up in Boston. Yep, right. But uh, tell us about what you're doing day to day when when you're not working on CSLA.net. Well, of course, I work for Magenic, and in that role, uh, my, my title is Technology Evangelist, and so it's kind of a unique role, and, a, and I think a good one for me anyway, in that uh, Magenic directly supports my work on CSLA. Um, I, I consider them a, a patron, uh, in fact, and uh, but they also support my traveling around and speaking at various conferences and user groups. Uh, so I'm an INETA speaker and have done a fair number of user groups over the past few years all over the country and um, speak at some user groups here where I live in Minneapolis from time to time. And uh, you know, tech ed, and a whole lot of different conferences that I've spoken at. And I also do some direct interaction with Magenics customers, and so I'll spend some time uh, helping out our sales team, uh, explaining. You know, uh, I guess usually I spend my time explaining uh, Microsoft technologies or or the direction that I think Microsoft is going, and. Uh, yeah, I think that having our consultants uh, have access to the you know the same information I do to some degree, and so I think there's a you know some value there to our customers, and so I try to kind of spell that out, and also do a fair amount of writing um, outside of just these big books. I do some articles and and uh, try to keep my blog fairly active and and technical focused. So. Kind of view my blog as my editorial outlet, you know, or so I blog technical things, but it usually um, has my opinion in there. Whereas when I'm writing a book or an article, it's hopefully just pure technical, <laughs> right? So, and I do a lot of research. Um, you know, people frequently ask how it is that I keep up with all the things that are, um, you know, going on and and all the changes and, you know, what's coming up in the future. And um, I, it takes a huge amount of time. And l- luckily, I think it's all fun. You know, I, I don't know that I could do it if it wasn't, you know, just downright enjoyable. But, uh, you know, so I spend a fair amount of time building applications. Um, sometimes they're prototypes and sometimes they find their way into an article and sometimes they don't find their way anywhere at all. Um, but 
they uh, always inform you know what I'm doing and thinking, and so you know, I'll build stuff with Silverlight and run into trouble, and then try and uh, you know, isolate that problem in a small app or uh, all sorts of different things along that line. So you get to really sort of play with the bits and take your time and really figure them out. That's something that a lot of you know a lot of developers that are working all the time head down in their projects don't seem not to be able to find the time to do very easily, especially with all this technology. I think your typical uh, company you know, hires their their developers and and programming staff uh, you know to come in and be productive and build business apps or you know whatever it is that that they're doing, and I. You know, and I understand this. It's it's challenging at best to think that you're going to say, "Hey, you know, spend X hours a week. Um, you're just dabbling, you know, playing with stuff." And uh, you know, I think if you look at jobs outside of the computer industry, it, it, this isn't even a concern. You look at uh, I've got a friend who's an accountant. You know, and it's not like his employer gives them a certain amount of time per week to uh, dabble in, in uh, accounting theory. Right. <laughs> He's supposed to know his job, and, and I think you know, they send him to training every year or two um, for a concentrated you know, dose of uh, you know, what's new in the tax laws and all that sort of thing. But it's, it's nowhere comparable to the, you know, our industry, where you know, the reality is that the employer hired you to do a job just like they did the accountant. But, you know, for each of us to maintain our own career, you have to find time one way or another to learn what's new and what's coming up, or, or eventually you're going to get dead-ended, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, since we brought up the topic of research and technologies and there's so much new stuff to talk about, let's get your opinions on some things. Um, have you looked at Oslo at all? I have. I've spent, a, I would say, a reasonable amount of time with Oslo. And I think Oslo is interesting. Um, depends on... So, so I look at Oslo as, as really two different things. And, and uh, Microsoft's message around Oslo has evolved over the past few months. On one hand, I look at Oslo um, as kind of a picture of what could be if that makes sense. In other words, I think it's a stepping stone to the one possible future of software development that's quite different from software development today. And so that's one approach, and we, we can talk about that. The other way to look at it is Microsoft's current message, which is that Oslo is a modeling tool uh, that sits on top of a database that stores metadata and application data uh, kind of all together in one ball of wax, and then you can project that metadata into a runtime uh, like ASP.NET, or uh, maybe they'll support Windows Azure or Azure. Um, but in any case, you've got this. And uh, I, I look at you know, on one hand, on one hand, you can be almost dismissive and say, "Oh, what Rocky just described is access." Yeah, that's the word that keeps rattling through my wow. head. You know, only it's access for the enterprise. Wow. So, um, and, and I think there's an element to that. I, You know, I never made that connection. 
Isn't that funny? Of course. And yeah, and and I've said this before, even in some speaking engagements, and had people roll their eyes and groan, and you can see them start to turn off. And they're like, "Oh, well, if that's what it is, then I yeah, don't care. I know that's a dangerous word to <laughs> throw around. No, but it access is. was and, and I, an I, incredibly productive tool for so? less technical people. That and and this is that's the thing: true. I, people, developers, tend to characterize access as an abject failure. Uh, yeah, that's that's not true. Well, a lot of people... <laughs> no, 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 I agree with your statement, but okay, that, it's okay. not true that it's an abject failure. I think I think we just tend to remember the pain more than the success. I think that's exactly right. Well, and I think the person that says that is someone who started development in Axis or near started there and evolved out of it. And like casting off your training wheels, you know, with disdain. Right. Yeah. Either that or else you're one of the people that had had to uh, take an access application that had gone from having two or three users to having 30 yeah. and, and uh, go through the pain of rewriting it into a scalable technology. Repair and compact, baby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the problem? Oh, there's more than one user accessing it. Um, As the number of users rises above one. one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I remember, but, you know, to be honest, uh, and I don't know how we got off on a tangent about access. I do now, but let's go there. Uh, I wouldn't know as much about T-SQL as I do if it weren't for that damn query designer, which was sure. so so helpful. And then even I remember designing queries in the query designer and taking the, the SQL and then pasting it into strings in Visual Basic and using, what was it, DAO back in the day you know, to, to access data that way rather than having to write applications and access. And that, that brought us into SQL Server. And, you know, I would have fallen on my face in SQL Server if I hadn't, you know, played around in access. Seriously, it would have been a lot more difficult. So, you know, there, that's a great, it was a great tool for, for its time. And I, and I think you know, even that, it still is. There's a lot of people that still build sure. applications using access. It is very tough to beat the reporting engine that's in access. Yeah, well, it's so integrated with everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we turn the conversation back to Oslo, sure. Um, you know, keeping in mind kind of this positive vibe we've built about access. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I really think that there's a, in that regard, there's a good analogy here because um, Oslo is a higher-level modeling tool that you know, I think a developer could use, but you know, it's also the kind of thing that um, I, I suspect a power user could also use, at least within you know, boundaries, hmm. to create or, or tailor or customize either an application or, or maybe just some screens. You know, maybe a developer builds all these screens, and the first thing some of your users say is, well, I only use half the fields. And so how do you create a custom screen for a couple people? And mm. Oslo, I think, offers that kind of flexibility where um, it doesn't even have to be a programmer that goes in and says, yeah, if I don't use those fields, I'll just chop them. And somebody else might use a different view that still has all the fields because they actually care. And this isn't stuff that we can't do with the tools we have. It's just... 
It's just easier and quicker and more productive to do it with a tool like Oslo. Well, I think so. Although, you know, you, you say that we can do it with the tools we have, and technically that's true. But if you stop and think that every time you build a Windows form or a web form or a WPF form, uh, just how would you make it so that the end user can tailor that form? Well, you allow them to, you, you build the, the UI dynamically. Yep. And then you, know. you got you define your own metadata tables to sure. uh, describe the fields and you know their positions on the screen and what happens when you get rid of one does the other one collapse over it and all this stuff and so if you look at it that way even at a very base level some of the things that Oslo um, you know, is intended to solve are, are these kind of low level plumbing things that yeah. deal with this configuration and, and so that's kind of cool. It is cool. Now, in terms of um, creating your own languages for, uh, you know, your own DSLs, is this something that you're interested in as well, in general? Yeah, I am. I've I've been looking at M and M schema, and I think that um, for for a hardcore programmer type person, this is the most interesting part of Oslo. Right. And I suspect that it will probably be the most mature part that comes out, at least in this first release that we see. Because, um, yeah. of course, the people building it um, inside of Microsoft are also a bunch of Uber geeks <laughs> right? Hmm. And, and language wonks, and, and they like this stuff, too. Sure. So, at the same time, I think there's a certain element of... of uh, I suppose danger or risk that I see uh, inherent in this, in that um, the domain-specific language concept sounds so good, right? Every every business problem could have a language that describes it at a high yeah. you know, abstract level, hmm. and for that matter, a lot of our programming problems could have um, a language that describes them at a high abstract level. Yeah, you, know, you could think about defining a DSL for uh, WPF or a DSL for configuration files, or sure. if you've got some uh, data import that most applications have, some sort of data import or export, you could envision a DSL that describes the the data that's in those imports and exports. And yeah, it's almost like a post XML worldview in that XML was the language to describe all this. And over the time, you know, the last several years, maybe we've started to realize that while XML is great for machines, it's pretty lame for people. And yep. so we still like VB and C sharp and Java and these other languages because they're, they're better than XML for a lot of what we do. But at the same time, they're too general purpose, uh, well, I shouldn't say it that way. They're, they're, they're general purpose such that you end up, you know, sitting in C sharp and expressing, you know, everything's a class. A service right. is a class. Well, why isn't service a first class concept? You know, yeah. a form is a class. Well, wh- why is that? Why isn't a form a first class concept? Right. And so DSLs give us the opportunity to make these things into first class concepts. That's the upside. Yeah. Now the downside, and I blogged about this recently, and most people seem to disagree with me, but uh, 
The downside, I, I suspect, is that if the, the three of us each sit down and we say, hey, you know what, we tend to each build a lot of, let's say, Windows applications. And each of us decides that we could write a DSL that would make Windows Forms yeah. development a lot more uh, abstract. And so pretty soon we've got Rocky's <laughs> language, Carl's language, and Richard's right. language. You know, this is not a good situation. Well, you know, for for things that are popular, I suspect that you are right about that. You know, you're going to go to some sort of DSL clearinghouse website and do a search for, you know, Windows Forms, and you'll get, you know, 10 or more languages. Who Who has time to evaluate them all? And uh, but I but I think that um, there are a lot of domains that are specific to business that um, that you really would only use in house that you wouldn't put out you know on a website you know we're we're used to writing software and releasing it into the ether and everybody's got their own stuff right. But I'm I'm thinking that the real value is going to be those domain specific languages that are where the domains are business domains, you know, and they're specific, like a Magenic DSL, you know. Yeah, maybe. This portion of .NET Rocks was brought to you by our very good friends at Telerik. Hey, don't you sometimes wish the internet was more like television? Instead of looking for some info scattered all over the place. You pick up the remote control, sit back, and enjoy browsing through hundreds of channels. Well, your dreams might be coming true with an exciting new resource brought to you by Telerik, the Telerik TV video portal. Telerik TV is a gateway to all Telerik video resources, webinars, product videos, how-tos, training materials, and much more. The videos are organized in a way that makes it easy to find answers to your problems or discover new tips and tricks as you browse various video channels. What's more, Telerik TV was built using Telerik's own RAD controls for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Open Access ORM, making it a great showcase of those products. So go on, pick up the remote, and start watching Telerik TV today at tv.telerik.com. You know, don't we always learn that domain anyway when we go in and, and work for a business? We just got to hold it in our head that, you know, the concept of a customer for this company looks like this. And, and I've got to remember that and, and implement it in my general lang- my general purpose language every time. Yeah. So it's got to be a big domain to solve a problem. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, it, you know, it's got to be worth the investment in learning now we're programming in a different language. No, I agree with that. I, I think that, and then I think that you're right in that you could say that, um, you know, the insurance industry or the accounting industry or you know, different either vertical or horizontal segments of business are big enough that you could say, hey, it's worth having right. a DSL. And I think what what will, if this, DSL thing is successful, which I think is an if by itself, but let's let's just presuppose that everybody jumps on the bandwagon. Mm. I think we're in for a period, probably a good decade, where um, every, let's pick on insurance, every big insurance company out there will create their own DSL. Then they'll realize they have to interoperate and or their employees, of course, move back and forth between you know employers over time because that's the nature of business. And every time an employee comes in, a new one, 
then they have to learn your DSL and unlearn the competitor's DSL. Right. So maybe there's like a third-party DSL market where one cream rises to the top. I suspect, and I think that'll take a good decade or so, but I think that's exactly the kind of thing that will happen. Some DSLs will live and some will die. And some companies that built their entire enterprise system on their homegrown DSL uh, will end up you know, having to rewrite their systems into a supported DSL. Um, and we've seen yeah. this before. You know, if, at least I have. I, I lived through the late 80s and early 90s when people all over the place especially had basic interpreters, but some people had their own C compilers. And, yeah. You know, and, and they were all non-standard. And then you get into the mid-90s when uh, PowerBuilder VB C++ really you know, became truly dominant. And there were numerous cases where uh, we had customers come and, and you know, want consulting services porting off their proprietary in-house made-up language <laughs> you know, into something that was supported by, by a big vendor. Yeah, and the whole thing here is the idea of being able to hire somebody competent in that already. Exactly right. Rather than knowing you have this front-end load of training for everybody. Well, and let's face it, you know, M schema is great. But I suspect that most people are not going to become language wonks just because they can run IntelliPad. And so, you know, you've still got the same problem where there's a, a relatively small number of people in the world that are capable of creating good languages. And... So if, you know, as a company, you've got one of those people and you let them run free, you know, you probably reap some benefit and that's good. But if you ever lose them, then you could be in trouble because now you've got to try and uh, hire a replacement, you know, out of a pretty exclusive pool of people. Or is this a consulting service that you would hire that you bring in an Oslo expert, an M schema expert to help you design your DSL and then your people just run with it? Thank you. That's my that, that's my new career. Dude. These are all good questions. <laughs> yeah, you were wondering what we were going to do for a living next year. <laughs> what uh, and and now you think I was just thinking about combining them. You know, is is that going to happen, or is somebody going to write a an assembly in one DSL and another person's going to write one in another, and we're combining these languages? And you know, is this a typical? Is this a problem also waiting to happen? Well, I guess maybe. I think it depends because. Well, you're not really writing assemblies, are you? It's being interpreted, isn't it? Well, M allows you to do some pretty interesting and innovative things. And so you can use M to be a text translator. In other right. words, it takes uh, your, your, um, your proprietary custom language in and then compiles it into some text that spits out. And that text might be XML or C Sharp mm. or SQL, you know. Microsoft's examples, for instance, take in um, you know uh, an M language that is for databases and spits out SQL. So that's one model. Another model is that you use the M compilers to uh, translate the input into um, something that fits into the Oslo repository, which is a metadata description that's stored right. in essentially stored in SQL Server. And right. so at that point, uh, that's pretty neutral. In fact, both of the first two options, I think, are arguably pretty neutral. And then the third option is that it's possible for you to create 
um, something that takes in your input language and spits out an assembly. You know, literally yeah. create an equivalent to C-sharp or VB. Right. And in that scenario, how does that work when you've also got C-sharp or VB? Well, I, I suppose, though, ultimately the final um, common language is CIL, right? I guess it's the project boundary, just like any other language. Yeah, and, you know, some of this remains to be seen because we don't know yet the story around tool integration, you know, in no. particular Visual Studio. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if they come up with a way that, that I can have uh, an M file in Visual Studio with a C-sharp code behind or something, that would be pretty interesting. It would be. Yeah, and it, it, what worries me about Oslo is it's been in gestation for a long time. And, you know, the survival of projects is really dependent on how long it is between thinking of it and delivering it. The longer that gets, the less likely it is it's going to survive. Well, that's true. And at the same time, some ideas are big. You know, there are, are in fact, ideas that um, do take a long time to, to work through. Um, right. And so this is, when we started talking about this, one of the things I said about Oslo is that you can, I, I also look at it the way it was portrayed way back at the beginning as being this 10-year vision of a new way of building software. And Microsoft has kind of you know, stepped away from that message, and that's fine. But I, I still think that, um, that that idea is lurking out there. You know, the, the people that started this project, you know, Doug Purdy and, and Don Box and some of those guys, um, I don't think they've shrunk their their thinking. You know, just because they're they're approaching a release and have to shrink the marketing message to, you know, to meet what people are seeing, hmm. that that's fine. But at least I would hope that they're still thinking big. That they're thinking, you know, we've been doing three GLs, you know, C, Pascal, Basic, you know, Java, C sharp doesn't. They're all three GLs. You know, we've been doing basically the same darn thing for like 30 years. And we've had a couple attempts at, at escaping the, the 3GL trap um, right. and looking at case or looking at 4GLs. And I think these guys are looking at it saying, yeah, well, maybe it's time to take another run. You know, maybe, yeah. maybe we've learned enough mm-hmm. um, and, and technology and our understanding has evolved enough that we can take another run at this thing. Um, and, and try and get a, you know, collectively get us to a higher level of abstraction so that we can increase our productivity by, you know, I mean, the way I look at it is, you know, so we, we get a new version of, of, uh, C sharp or VB in it. Uh, after you learn the new features, your productivity goes up by half a percent or something, or maybe a percent. I mean, it's definitely, definitely true that, that link increases productivity. Uh, yeah. Yay, that's wonderful. But it's not an order of magnitude. You know, it's no. not a huge leap. And so the question is then where 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 can we get a huge leap? You know, and it's an interesting oscillation here that that we did have that evolution of languages against the bare operating system. And I'm thinking about the D bases and clippers and such. And then Windows came along and we sort of stepped back and went to more primitive languages running against Windows. I mean it started with C and gradually evolved to more easy-to-use and productive languages. And you could talk about Power Builder or, or Access or FoxPro as sort of final incarnations in the GUI. And then in came the managed model and back to more primitive languages again. 
And now we're working our way through those languages and starting to look at what is the, dare I say it, Fox Pro of managed memory. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And it's interesting because you, you term this you know, as in terms of, of language, that the languages got more abstract and now they went back to be um, a little more primitive. And I would beg to differ a little there in that I think the languages in general have slowly evolved. I'm not convinced that at a language level we've gone backwards. But where we went, we, we took a huge leap forward in the mid-90s with Power Builder and VB uh, was actually around the tooling. Right. And, and all the things that surrounded the language. And I think that in that case, the choice of language was somewhat arbitrary. And it was more that, you know, you had all of this rad productivity tooling and wizards and, and things. Um, I think the way to look at it is, is that we were surrounded by higher levels of abstraction. And then you do get into .NET and everything becomes a class. And all of those higher levels of abstraction vanished, <laughs> uh, other than as maybe a base class here and there. And you know, and maybe maybe we needed that. Maybe we needed this uh, kind of respite to run around and and uh, explore um, patterns and and uh, dependency inversion and all this other stuff that's going on. You know, because those are low level, very very deep plumbing type things that at the same time. Um, I think are informing some of these higher level, uh, I guess the building of the higher level ideas. You know, personally, I, I love the patterns. I love most of the patterns, and I, I use many, many of them. And you know, a lot of the people listening that are patterns people are like, "Yeah, you know, they don't believe me, but it's true." But the thing is, <laughs> it's my view that your average business developer shouldn't have to um, memorize the Gang of Four book. Right. That in fact they should have higher levels of abstraction and or tooling that just makes it work the right way. And the fact that in the end they're using um, the appropriate pattern uh, to do the appropriate thing to, in order to achieve scalability and maintainability and so forth, um, it should be an unconscious effort on their part. And that's not, certainly not the case today. Hey, Rocky, can I uh, switch gears for a second? You wrote an excellent blog post about your experiences with Windows Home Server. Sure. Tell me what you think of that. I love Windows Home Server. Now, do you, is it just for the home? I think it's just for the home. So tell me what's so cool about it. Well, I bought the HP box, and um, which is unusual for me. I, I've got a friend who builds all my computers and does a spectacular job. And, in fact, he was crushed when he found out I'd bought this. I was thinking exactly that, and you heard him. You heard him when you bought somebody else's computer. <laughs> no, I really, I really did. He was like, you did what? You did. <laughs> I'm the same way, man. I build my machines. Yeah, I, me too. I, I have a tough time buying laptops. Yeah. But I got to say that, that this, this box, it was just the most impressive Windows experience I've ever had. Really? I get this box and it's all shiny and pretty and I, I open the box up and inside is a uh, beautiful black mini tower. But it's a custom job where the front opens up and there are four drive bays 
that are removable live while the machine's running. And so you can insert a new hard drive without taking the, the machine down. And nice. on the back, there's a power, a place to plug in the power and a place to plug in the network and a whole bunch of USB uh, spots for a printer or uh, external hard drives. And that's it. No place yeah. to plug in a keyboard, monitor, mouse, none of that stuff. This thing is totally, it's like an Xbox. It's, it's a consumer appliance. Huh. And Well, and, yeah, there is no video plug on it. No. That's awesome. And, and it came with one of those fold-out um, posters, you know, the, the get-started get posters like you would get with, with uh, you know, a television or something. Hmm. And, you know, step one, remove from packaging. Step two, plug in power. Step three, plug in Ethernet cable. Step four, push power button. <laughs> you know, I'm more and more impressed with Hewlett Packard these days. They're doing some really nice stuff. The Touch Smart, for example. This thing impressed me. And then once you get it running, you install a, a client agent on every one of your home computers. And from that point forward, it starts backing up that computer pretty much every night. Or, you know, if it doesn't get a backup within five days, it starts warning you. Hmm. Um, well, actually, I should put it a different way. Um, all of the computers in your home, the, the little icon turns from green to yellow if any of the computers in your home haven't been backed up within five days. And it does it automatically, obviously. Sure. Right? It's, and And so, like my kids... You know, one, my one son turns his computer off every night, so it never gets backed up. And so I'm constantly getting reminded that his computer, you know, is not protected. Um, and that turns out to be important because just the, re the reason I wrote that blog post is because one of my kids' computers, the hard drive, just fried. And historically, a hard drive going down especially on one of their computers, because who would back up your kid's computer, hmm. is, you know, that means me spending probably, you know, half a day to a day reinstalling Windows, reinstalling all their stuff, all of the Internet protections, and uh, them spending who knows how long reinstalling games and whatever else. And with the Windows Home Server, I put in a new hard drive, I booted off the uh, Restore CD that came with it, with the Windows Home Server, and it walked me through, I don't know what, a five-step wizard, something like that, and then it crunched for about an hour while it copied everything back onto the machine from the server, and then the machine rebooted, and it was like normal. Wow. I'm like, okay, that, that was worth it right there. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's right. Well, and that, that box was not that expensive. They're only like five or $600, right? Right, it, yeah. And you think it saved me an entire, probably basically an entire Saturday that I got to go have fun instead of reinstalling software. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you only need one of those. Yep. And then, it's true. But it gets better. I mean, I'm going to sound like a sales guy. but <laughs> You're getting there. <laughs> um, but it's also a, uh, a media streaming server. So it can, it's got two different streaming packages. So it can stream to iTunes devices or to uh, Windows devices. Right. And it streams video, audio, and pictures. And then it's also got software so that it will act as a home web server. Well, wait a minute. Let's go back to streaming for a minute. What do you mean exactly by streaming? So from a client computer, you say, what, you, you 
How does that work exactly? And why do you need that server to stream? Is it is the is it from content that's on the server? Yeah. So you download content to the server, and then it can stream to your other devices. Is that the deal? Oh, so I've got all my um, you know, home videos that I've taken for all from the kids and all yeah. this stuff, and and uh, my music library, all the CDs that I've you know ripped over the many many years that I listen okay. to. And all, right. uh, all of our digital photos. And I think, like most people, we probably don't have a traditional photo that we've taken in the last decade. Yeah. And so all these things are sitting on the server. Mm-hmm. And and okay, so honestly, you can sit down in a, at a PC and just browse the folder structure and watch this stuff, right? Or look yeah. at it. Um, but if you've got if your PC is connecting over a um, you know wireless and Maybe it might be bandwidth constrained because maybe you've got kids that are also playing video games at the same time. Right. Um, then you might want to do, you might prefer streaming, especially for video, because it's going to consume less bandwidth than just downloading mm. the thing. Mm. Um, but also, it means that your Xbox 360 uh, can re- uh, watch this stuff or, or you know view this the you know because uh, it uses the streaming interface. Mm-hmm. And it also means Neat. that you can go um, buy those uh, small commercial boxes that are, uh, um, will just, you know, like there are boxes that will play iTunes music, for instance, that plug into right. your stereo or whatever. And because yeah. the thing appears as though it's an iTunes source, all those boxes just work with it. Is that like the popcorn, I think, is one of those? Yeah, I honestly, I don't have any of them, so I, I don't know, but. It's interesting. And if you open a port in your uh, router, you can stream out onto the internet. And so, if you wanted, I suppose you could, you know, if you travel a lot, you could be, you know, watching your content off your server from a hotel room or something. Does the um, does the home server have a remote interface? Like, is there actually a desktop that runs somewhere? Is it Windows, or does it is it, you know, does it run services? What it, what is it actually? Well, there are two consoles. One is the one that you're supposed to use. And if you, you know, the little icon in your system tray on a, on your client machine, you double click and it comes up with this uh, nice looking um, graphical interface that lets you uh, examine the status of your server and set up backups and, you know, they basically do the common tasks that you're, okay. you would, I think, expect someone to do. For people like us that want to maybe dig in a little deeper, you can uh, use remote desktop and connect right. it directly, and then it's Windows Server 2003. Nice. And except, except that as you log in, it fires up a browser with a big warning sign uh, that says, while this might look like Windows, it's not really because we did a bunch of custom stuff. I, I'm adding huh. words here. Yeah. Um, and if you use m- many common Windows utilities, will basically trash the system. Okay. Bad things will happen. And if you start poking around and looking at the, um, like, I've got three drives, physical drives in mine, but you can't see them. Even when you're logged in through RDP, um, I see two drives. Neither of them, it, it just, the sizes don't add up. <laughs> it, 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 you know. It's very confusing, and, and it's obvious that they've done some things at the file system level um, you know, that, are, that are quite clever. And if you, I'm sure if you sat down and tried to run disk repair or defrag or any of those utilities, it would probably trash everything. 
It would be bad. Now, what about raid? Does it do it? I don't know that it does raid. Um, it does its own duplication processing. So data that's stored um, on the server, you can indicate on a folder or uh, and a node-by-node node basis and say that you would like, and, and I do this too. Yeah, I said, well, I want my node to be protected. And so it makes sure that all of my data is on at least two hard drives. So if any one of those hard drives fails, there's a, is, there, is it guaranteed that your protected stuff is protected? That's right. I, I imagine that two of the hard drives would have to fail for me to lose anything. Sure. Which brings me to an interesting problem. And uh, I'm sorry for geeking out on you guys here, but it seems to be where we're going. The uh, Seagate 1.5 terabyte drives, and by the way, Western Digital just came out with a 2 terabyte, yep. count them, 2 terabyte SATA drive for $299, newegg.com, I swear to God. Don't know how good it is, but the Western, uh, but the Seagate 1.5 terabyte drives apparently have some of the, uh, the old firmware versions have some problem with RAID systems. So I got my brother a, uh, a NAS system, a network-attached storage device from QNAP. And this is about 1000 bucks. It holds five drives. And I got this is I got him for Christmas. I got him five one-and-a-half-terabyte drives, thinking, oh, yeah, this is going to be awesome. I set it up, and it formatted everything and, and was up and running in literally 20 minutes. And it was one of these experiences, just like you're describing, Rocky. It had a network jack. It had a, a little thing that says, here's how you connect to it. Set up your security settings. Here's how you initialize the drives. Boom, you're done. I copied a few files to it, set it aside. Christmas Day, I bring it over. He plugs it in. He starts copying all his, you know, his, you know, gobs and gobs of disks that he's compiled, his CDs and DVDs of backups and stuff onto it. And one by one, the drives started failing. And it turns out that there was a there's a problem with a particular piece of firmware, one of the firmware versions that in certain RAID settings and on certain Linux devices, which this QNAP thing is a Linux box, um, these drives will fail. So you got to be careful about that stuff. I can't express enough how important it is to do a little research before you buy anything. You know, just go out and do a Google search and find out what people are saying about it. There wasn't any comments on on uh, Newegg when I at the time I bought them. Nasty surprise. Well, and that's the risk about jumping into something that's quite new too, is that people sure. haven't had time to have the failures yet. Maybe. Yeah. It well, and, and and Windows Home Server seems very conservative. Actually, that they've done pretty straight up stuff. Obviously, they have an interesting drive controller because you can just add drives live, which is stuff I've done with thirty thousand dollar. Uh, you know, SQL servers, but to do it on a $500 home server is amazing. That is pretty cool, yeah. Yeah, you you can, you, uh, well, and I've done it twice now. So you just take the drive bay out, put your, uh, the physical drive into the bay, because it acts kind of like a cartridge, and then you slide it back in, and uh, it spins up the drive, and the little light turns, I think, purple to indicate that it's there, but not useful yet. And then you uh, fire up the standard the nice, you know, consumer-friendly console, and it shows the drive as being uh, there but unused, and then you right-click on it and say that you'd like to either use it as a backup target 
or you'd like to merge it into the server pool. Hmm. And if you merge it in, then it just adds to your total storage space. And if you make it a backup drive, then the server, one of the things that you can do is have the server back itself up, um, or, or its data, I should say. Um, I use an external drive for that. So, you know, every few days I go in and, um, you know, right-click and tell it to back up all the data on the server um, to this external drive, because that way, even if the whole Windows Home server somehow fried, it, right. it would have, you know, some copy. Right. So why you said this is a home thing. Why wouldn't a small office use this, maybe with five or six computers? Why would? Why not? I suppose that you could use it in a small office. I, I think the reason that I said it was a home thing primarily is that it, it uh, is not a domain-based model. You know, so it's, it uses the workgroup model for your networking. And right. I think it's got some limits, and I, I honestly don't know, maybe it's 10 computers or something. Uh, mm. There's a limit on how many computers it can back up. Yeah, and and so I suspect that it, you know, it might work fine in a small office, but it's not really designed for it. Yeah, the feature set seems like it's just totally aimed at the home. Other than backing up machines, you know, it, it really hasn't got the you know streaming media and stuff. It's just not important for business. Well, just because it has these extra features doesn't mean that the the, the backup features aren't worth it. I'm thinking of comp- you know companies that have five or ten computers that have really large, expensive backup systems, and you know, with the price of hard drives coming down all the time, you could, you know, what do you, what does it have? Four bays? Yes, that's right. So you know, if these two terabyte drives turn out to be pretty good, that's that's some nice space that you've got for backups. You know, at a fairly affordable rate. Well, not only that, the backups. Um turn out to be using some pretty sophisticated techniques in that they right. do um, block-level backups. And so if all your computers, say, are running Vista, it'll only copy Vista once, if that makes sense. Wow. Now, in yeah. other words, i got all the computers in my home backed up, and it's using roughly a third of the space that it should be using um, if it had backed up everything independently. So some kind of Delta system for doing backups. It's smart. Well, and I think... It, it's a combination of, of we're only running either Vista or XP, so we've only got two operating systems total that it backed up. And then, you know, my kids and I play a lot of the same video games, and so it probably only backed up each video game once. And so, right. you know, and those are huge, of course, with all the graphic content. So, no, I, I think you got a point in that for a small business that has a, a small number of computers and just needs a backup solution... You know, it, it's probably a good bet. Pretty good answer. What else have you been thinking about these days? Have you have you looked at Windows 7? I just installed Windows 7 last week. Uh, I borrowed a laptop from Magenic to play with because I wasn't going to put it on a machine I'm using every day. And my experience thus far has been generally really good. Um, it's a... Uh, as you might expect from a borrowed laptop, it's not top of the line. <laughs> um, uh, but it's, it's, it's actually almost the same laptop I usually use, except that it's got a lot less memory. Um, and so, you know, not, not to diss on Vista too much, but I, I don't think I would have installed Vista on this machine because of the lack of memory. But yeah. Windows 7 is running faster on that machine 
than Vista does on the same machine with twice the memory. I've heard it's running faster than XP and uh, and runs in less memory than XP. Um, I haven't done that comparison, but I, I would not be surprised. And, and this is beta. When right? I say faster, it's it's the common things, and and these are the things that usually get people when they install Vista, like you know, opening a folder or uh, opening a folder that has got a lot of images or things like that that are, are on XP pretty fast, on Vista really slow, and on Windows Seven are are really really fast. Yeah, that's it's it's encouraging to see that, especially knowing that it's beta with all the debug check code in there, right? It's a debug check build, so there's there's a yeah. lot of code that's going to come out when it when it hits manufacturing that'll make it even faster still. I, I would hope so. Um, I installed Office, and that seems to work pretty well. Although I've noticed some strange, quirky things in Word, um, and, and so I assume there's some low level API stuff that they're still working out. And uh, I installed Virtual PC. And I've had some rendering issues with that um, in terms of the screen not always redrawing properly. And I suspect that's, again, because we're dealing with beta video drivers, too. Yeah. And um, what else have I installed? Oh, I installed Visual Studio 2008, Service Pack 1, .NET, all all the, uh, and Tortoise SVN, all the stuff I need to do development work. Right. And that all seems to work flawlessly. It's pretty cool. I um, I've uh, run into a little bit of a snag with it, but I, I think it's because of my um, my video. I'm I'm running these 30 inch monitors, and and I haven't hooked up another monitor to it yet to find out if that's it. But the install seemed to just stop at a certain point. But uh, the machine's still running, so it's not it's not like it's hosed. But uh, I'm looking forward to it quite a bit. Have you figured out the 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 toolbar? The start bar down at the bottom? Yeah, the toolbar. Yeah, I um, I think I'd seen a briefing on it from Microsoft, so I kind of knew what to expect. And it'll take a little getting used to, <laughs> but I, I I think I can like it. And I think they're going to tweak it a few more times, too. You know, this um, beta was really, let's see how the world reacts to these these sorts of UI elements. And a lot of it I like, you know, in terms of the UI elements, the... the um, you know, just some of the minor tweaks around the the um, start menu and and some of the they've tweaked some of the dialogues in terms of uh, personalizing the screen and and theming for your you know, just the visual layout and I really like some of that um, I, I found it to be in, you know reasonably intuitive and um, it's kind of in some ways it seems it feels like they're trying to do for Windows what the office team did for office with the ribbon. Right, in that they're taking some some things that I'm sure uh, were in XP or and or Vista, but were hard to find, and they're they're trying to elevate them to a level where people can go, oh yeah, look, there's this cool thing. You know? Yeah, and it's and it's got it. You know, there's a mixture of metaphors in there right now, which I find a little confusing. The is that a document or an application or, but I guess it's all, it's always been there. Probably the the one. Um, tweak that I'll call out that I, I at least have already started to appreciate is that when you do a start, you know, you, you bring up the start menu and it lists your commonly used applications. 
your recently opened documents are per application. Oh, that's cool. And so you, you know, hover the mouse over Word, and there's all the Word documents, and you don't have to... I, I thought that was great. It's a nice step. Well, Rocky, we're just about out of time. Any Anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to cover? Well, I think the only thing I'd like to end with, um, if, if you'll indulge me a little, is that... Um, Obviously, the economy and everything is is a little bit bleak at the moment, um, and there's a lot of unknowns, um, you know, jobs and conferences and all this stuff that that seem to be there's a lot of turbulence. And at the same time, um, I, I kind of would hope that we can all look at it as, as, in a positive light as as we can, because regardless of all of the things that are going on. The fact is that, that from a technology perspective, right now today, there's some, I think, really cool stuff and things that, that I'm finding to be exciting, especially Silverlight, WPF, and, and uh, some of the language enhancements that people are just dabbling with, uh, a lot of people at least, around lambdas and link. And I'm having, I personally am having more fun with the technology right now than I have uh, for some time. And I think it's just because there's, a fair number of really cool things that um, are just catching my imagination. And so uh, I just kind of want to encourage people um, to go out and, and, you know, there's so much stuff, whether you you like ASP.NET MVC or Silverlight or um, programming patterns or or the cool Lambda stuff or, you know, there's just tons of stuff and and there's bound to be something for anybody that wants to get excited. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good time to uh, to 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 get your book on, <laughs> get yeah. your research on, right? But it's also, you know, if maybe it's you don't have budget to just innovate for fun, but these are competitive advantages. Absolutely. Yep, and you know, there's books out there and blogs, and you know, it's it's not like you know, even ten years ago, you if 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 we were stuck in an economic spot like this ten years ago, finding the resources. Um, to boost your own skills would be difficult. It'd be books only, probably. But now with the uh, you know the internet the way it is and everything else, you know, the reality is that there's information oozing out of the walls, and right. so it's really just a matter of finding the time to invest in your own career. And it doesn't have to be a lot of time, but you know it should be at least a little bit to dig into some of these things and and uh, you know look at them and learn them and appreciate them because some of them are just plain fun. Yeah, I agree. Nice. That's a good place to leave it. Thanks, Rocky. Thank you guys very much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, whether it's uh, in the Speaker's Lounge or on .NET Rocks or hanging out at uh, one of these conferences. Uh, Thanks a lot again, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. 
For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.